Welcome to the Center of Everywhere podcast, where we explore stories of rural Minnesotans who are making a difference in their communities. Rural isn't in the middle of nowhere. It is in the center of everywhere. Hello and welcome to the Center of Everywhere. This is Season 4, Episode 2. My name is Julie Tesh and I am President and CEO of the Center for Rural Policy and Development. Today, our guest is our friend Scott McMahon. He is the Executive Director of the Greater Minnesota Partnership. Hello, Scott. Hello, Julie. How are you doing? Doing great. How are you? Just fantastic. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. This is kind of becoming a tradition here um, before session, having you come on and talk about looking into your crystal ball of what might happen. And uh, so thanks for doing this again. Oh, I appreciate it. So let's just jump. There's so much we can talk about. You know, we were talking about how the words interesting and unique might come up a lot in this <laughs> this podcast. Um, but let's start out with just a recap of last session. It, as a 100,000 foot, not even a 30,000 foot, but a recap. Where Where did rural come out in rural Minnesota come out in all of that? You know, Julie, that's that's an interesting question, and that's the first time that the word <laughs> interesting has come up in this conversation already. Um, you know, obviously, the big driver of the session last year was the $17 billion surplus. And, you know, we, we encountered a situation where we had this large surplus uh, at the time following an election, and it was a pretty... Uh, pretty big changing election in St. Paul in that it was the first time in a decade that one party took control of all parts of state government. So Governor Walls was reelected. Uh, the House uh, the House was controlled uh, again by, by the Democrats and the Democrats took control of the Senate. Uh, and so that meant that, you know, one party for the most part was making the decisions on how to invest those uh, those $17 billion. Um, at the same time, in that election, we have seen shifts happen happening in kind of where the basis of political power uh, and elections come out across the state. And what we're seeing is uh, a lot of Democrats being elected in uh, the Twin Cities and in the regional centers across greater Minnesota, so a place like Rochester, Duluth, St. Cloud, Mankato. Uh, and then our uh, our rural areas of Greater Minnesota being represented by Republicans, and so what happened with the election is that a lot of the decision making influence was brought into the Twin Cities metropolitan area, um, and there wasn't much of a rural voice uh, in a lot of those situations, and so. Uh, we were concerned going into the session, just kind of where things were going to go. Um, and I think the the outcome, you know, frankly, was was mixed for what happened in Greater Minnesota. Um, there were some areas where uh, where Greater Minnesota came out, you know, really strong. Um, there are some areas where uh, where we didn't end up where I think we needed to be. Um, you know, a, a classic example is. Uh, is broadband for the state. Um, we have known uh, for some time what it's gonna cost for us to reach our, our 2026 goal of 
having all properties connected to service of 100 uh, megabytes per second download and, and 20 megabytes per second upload. And, and the state's goal for some time has been to have that done by 2026. And we knew exactly what it was going to cost to do it. Uh, and it ended up being uh, a little north of a billion dollars would have been needed last year to do it. And that's a combination of federal money and state money. Um, and you would think with the $17 billion surplus that we could, you know, make a pretty strong effort to get that get that done. And, and the reality is a lot of the properties that are that are short on broadband are in, are in our rural communities. Um, and we couldn't get that one done. And, you know, it was disappointing kind of see that investment not happen. Um, yeah. On the flip side, you know, we the state made some really strong investments on housing in greater Minnesota, uh, in particular around supporting the needs in our communities for uh, market rate workforce housing, which is the biggest uh, need area that we have across the region. So, you know, I think the 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 grade coming out of uh, out of last session was probably, I would say, a, a C plus B minus for what you know could have happened with the surplus that we had. Uh, but we'll come back out of this session and kind of see where things go going forward. Yeah, and as we know, this is a bonding year this year, hopefully, uh, infrastructure year. And I know, well, today is, uh, what, January 17th. So when this airs, it'll be in a couple weeks. But the governor just released his recommendations for the bonding bill. And it, it I was just going through and looking at the local government ones and the ones that were turned down by the governor, not in his budget. And obviously, there's a whole bunch of things that'll go on between now and May, but it's just interesting looking at what, what he, what the governor, you know, the state buildings, just looking at here, like what he's proposing, you know, state buildings, 440 million, you know, to renew state buildings, University of Minnesota, Men's State, which I totally get being a graduate of there and used to work at the University of Minnesota, they got to take care of the buildings. Um, water and transportation, what, 215 million, public safety, 142 million, um, state, a new state patrol headquarters potentially, and then housing. So that's 10% of the budget. So 97 million. So that's great. Um, and then other, the miscellaneous projects. And so that's like where local government and, you know, childhood facilities come in, the child care. So, you know, that's a real high level look at it, but, um, Curious on your first reactions out of the gate. The, I know we haven't had much time to look at it, but what are your reactions right away? You know, it's 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 a good proposal. Um, it's kind of what we expected to come out of the governor's office. It's heavy focus on uh, investing in the infrastructure needs, primarily at the state level. Uh, there's not a lot of local partnership proposals in the bill. Um, and, you know, the reality is with the bonding bill, uh, you need a supermajority to get it out of uh, out of the legislature to the governor's desk. And so passing a, a bonding bill is going to require uh, greater Minnesota Republican votes to to get it done. Um, and right now, there's not a lot of things in the governor's proposal that's going to bring uh, Republicans to the table. Um, the other thing to keep in mind on this whole bonding conversation is in a in a typical legislative environment, the legislature sets the state's budget in the first year of the biennium, which is always the odd years. And then in the even years, the second year of the biennium is generally a the, the bonding year. 
Um, and we've been a little uh, out of kilter in recent years. So we passed the bonding bill last in 2000 and then took a couple years where there wasn't a bonding bill. Uh, and then the state passed a significant bonding bill last legislative session. And so, uh, you know, one of the questions is going to be, is there going to be a willingness uh, to even have a bonding bill this session, uh, given the fact that we had a large one last year? So we have had a large bonding bill in the context of the current biennium. Uh, with that said, you know, the state still has significant borrowing capacity uh, and there's still a significant need for the types of projects we fund through bonding. So. When you look at the governor's proposal, he recommends $982 million of funding uh, for infrastructure projects. And the majority of that money is, is targeted to be financed through the sale of general obligation bonds or taking on debt for the state uh, with another uh, chunk being paid for out of cash out of the state's uh, existing state surplus. Um, but you know, there's, we had the, you know, we had the big bill last year. And so uh, we're not quite positive if, if there's going to be the support to do another, another large bill this year going forward. So I think that's going to be a big, big point of discussion uh, starting on day one when the legislature comes back in February. Absolutely. I mean, it, Again, I'll use the word unique. I think this is the first time in the podcast I'll say the word unique. But, you know, it's, last year was a unique year. This will be a unique year. And just thinking if they don't end up, I mean, they'll try to take up a bonding bill. But if they don't, uh, what does that mean? You know, it means uh, that we continue backlogging a lot of uh deferred maintenance on a lot of things. And, you know, from from greater Minnesota investments, there's a lot of infrastructure needs that our communities have where the cities don't have the tax capacity themselves to bear the full cost. Um, and so it, become, it needs to become a partnership for the state. And so, you know, a classic example is across uh, all of Minnesota, our cities are responsible for the maintenance of our water infrastructure. So uh, both dealing with our drinking water and more importantly, dealing with our wastewater. And in our sparsely populated communities, you know, it, it's a large cost to maintain and build out the infrastructure needed to, to deal with wastewater. Uh, but in our sparsely populated communities, you know, they don't have the tax base to finance those things themselves. And so, what's needed is that partnership with the state to make it work because if, if a city can't process all of their wastewater then that wastewater has to go somewhere uh and it goes back into the ecosystem and then we have you know polluted rivers and lakes and and watersheds uh and so it, it really isn't in the priorities of the state to have to have these things go forward but it takes bills like the bonding bill to provide the resources to make it happen um, and so it's not a situation where, you know, communities are are just going after dollars because they can. It's because these investments need to happen. Uh, and it's going to take strong state and local partnerships to make it go through. So the, the bonding bill is an important vehicle 
to to address a lot of these infrastructure needs that we have across the state. Absolutely. You know, I think of I'm here in southern Minnesota, south of Mankato, and just our small towns around here. Uh, you know, the town of Wasika put in a request for a new water tower, and that would be in addition to their current one, but grow, trying to grow the city or my little town of Waldorf here finishing up a wastewater project. And, you know, like you said, there's not the tax base. And I think sometimes people forget that, that, you know, we a town of 201 that I live near Waldorf, they do not have the tax base, not even close. Heck, Wasika doesn't have the tax base. And so, like you said, that partnership. And so I know there's some like I don't want, it's not, it's not political, but like policy driven, pure people that are like, well, the state money, we, the state doesn't take care of those things. And it's like, well, but it's for the greater good. And so trying to get people to understand that is, I've had a few conversations with people and I'm like, it's different. It's for the greater good. And like you talked about wastewater. Well, do you want our wastewater to be going into the ecosystem? No. So we need to have that partnership. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing that came to mind, Julie, it, and the, your organization's done a great job of lifting up these facts, is that we're seeing population growth in greater Minnesota. Um, yep. And so these communities are having to deal with, uh, you know, with more people demanding more of, of those services. Um, you know, when you look back at the at the 2020 census, you know, we saw we saw growth in greater Minnesota. Uh, it was concentrated more in our population centers. Uh, and so, you know, it kind of tells us two different things there. One is that, uh, you know, people are moving away from the truly, truly rural side of greater Minnesota into our, our city side of it. Uh, but also new folks who are coming to Minnesota are choosing to live in greater Minnesota, which is fantastic. We've got phenomenal employers all across uh, the state, and the workforce is a, is a key part of that. Um, but the reality is, it it takes a lot of stuff to uh, to make growth work. Um, and you know, when you take a an area like the Twin Cities, at, you know, ballparking numbers here at two and a half million people, and you add. Uh, at a hundred thousand people in a year, it's a lot easier to absorb those numbers than if you have a community of, you know, five thousand and you add twenty. Um, mm -hmm. Those twenty people just place a lot more demands on infrastructure that may have just barely been able to support the, the five thousand who were there originally. Uh, but it's important to make sure that people have access to things like clean water uh, and the clean environment. Absolutely. It, we like to say here at the Center for Rural Policy and Development that economies of scale is kind of a bad, a bad phrase, like a swear word almost, <laughs> because it's in, you know, that's typically what people are looking for is the economies of scale and how many people are you affecting? And it's like, well, that it's different out here. And it doesn't work that way. Like you said, 20, getting 20 people, new, 20 new people or 20 new households in a town of 5,000, that's major. But there might not necessarily be the quote unquote economies of scale. Absolutely. And I think, you know, your point about the economies of scale is, is critically important when you look at an issue like childcare in greater Minnesota. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we're short 
about 44,000 childcare slots. And a significant portion of solving that is going to be building and staffing childcare centers, you know, mm -hmm. places for our kids to go that aren't in the usual, you know, in-home daycare setting. Uh, and, and the reality is you need childcare centers of 100 or 120 kids before you even approach the point of having something that's in a cash flow. Thanks. But the majority of our communities across greater Minnesota that have childcare shortages don't need a center of 100 or more. They need centers of 30, 50, 70. Uh, and it's because we're, we're dealing with sparsely populated areas. Uh, and so it, it just presents bigger challenges. We, we see the same situations in issues around housing and, you know, kind of wander through the different economic indicators. And we had that economies of scale meets sparsely populated areas as driving challenges across so many of these different areas. Yeah, it's, gosh, when you talk about child care, you know, we have several reports out on child care, and one of them is talking about new ideas of what people are doing. And I just recently learned about the city of New Ulm. And I, I, I don't know the specifics, but I know that four um, in-home childcare providers are going together and doing a pod model. So they're sharing, you know, uh, the lunch area, the play area, whatever. And so it'll be curious to see how that takes off. And I forget if the city is partnering with them or who, but, you know, it, it's not business as usual. And it, we have to be creative in those partnerships. And I think of also Hormel. Hormel is uh, on the cusp of opening their new child care center for their employees. And they're hoping to have spots eventually available for the public. You know, Julie, there is a ton of innovation happening across Greater Minnesota child care front. Um, there are, you know, in, in the example that you raised with New Ulm, you know, it's the city's EDA that is really driving that development uh, and get that going forward. It's, it's exciting to see. But we've got a number of, of projects and ideas being driven by local governments from communities, you know, Laverne, New Ulm, Little Falls, Warren, you know, kind of wander through the state and you're going to see these things. We also have projects that are coming out from industry. Um, I'm in conversation with uh, three significant employers in greater Minnesota right now who are looking at how do they go about either building or supporting the construction uh, and the development of new child care businesses uh, in their communities, not only to serve their employees, but their communities as a whole. Um, and, you know, one one exciting thing that did come out of the legislative session last year was the creation of a new office at the Department of Employment and Economic Development uh, called the Office of uh, Child Care Community Partnerships. And it's really intended to be a go-to place for all of these entities around the state, whether they're local governments or employers who are trying to figure out how do we get childcare solved in our communities. And one of the realizations that policymakers came to over the past year or two is that, especially in greater Minnesota, we keep asking our local communities, whether it's the local governments or businesses, to step up and be a partner on solving the local childcare problem. But then we have uh, childcare from a state regulatory standpoint in agencies that none of, the, none of those folks deal with. 
And mm-hmm. so uh, Deed is an, is an agency that all these folks deal with on a regular basis. And we've got Deed contacts throughout uh, throughout the state. And so our hope is that this can really kind of be a one-stop shop to help these folks figure out, you know, what are what are the ideas that you can be looking at in your community? But more importantly, where are the resources both inside state government and outside state government with organizations like Commercial and Finance and others that can help come into a community to figure out where they need to go to deal with their local child care shortage. That'll be awesome. That a one-stop shop would be absolutely fantastic. You know, and then after that, the next step is figuring out, I mean, it's a systemic thing. The next step is how do we make sure that the people who are working at child care facilities are paid well, but that it's yet affordable for families. And so it's I'm glad that there's steps being taken mm-hmm. to doing that. And I also I, I want to transition here to talking about housing because it Again, for our listeners, I know a lot of you are in greater Minnesota and you know that childcare is short, housing is short. And, you know, we are seeing some movement like we've seen with the census and our state of rural that just came out that certain areas in rural Minnesota are growing. And, you know, you just wonder in the back of your head, if we had adequate housing and adequate childcare, how much more that would grow? You know, I don't know how much that is, but I truly believe that there would be more of a transition. But talking about housing, just transition to that, I think about, gosh, it was what, four years ago? They didn't even, the housing, housing in in the Senate was in with the Ag Committee and housing was barely paid attention to. I I had just started here and, you know, we, I work more with the Ag, the Department of Agriculture with Rural Development. And I remember sitting there in one hearing thinking, why is housing in this egg committee, you know, and fortunately now people are talking about it more and thinking more about it. It has its own jurisdiction now, but the whole housing, housing area, what are you hearing from employers? I know I hear from certain employers that they're, they're like, I never anticipated being a landlord or a, a real estate broker, but I need employees. So we have to figure out how to house them. Yeah, you know, I uh, over the past few months, I have driven all over the state. I've been meeting with employers, kind of hearing from them as to what's going on. And whether I'm in northern Minnesota talking to you know, our employers in places from Duluth to Beaver uh, River Falls and Roseau and, and East Grand Forks, or I'm down south talking with employers in communities like Worthington and Jackson and Winona, Everybody's talking about housing. Uh, everybody is experiencing the same workforce shortages. So they're all trying to recruit more people to come in and help them produce their their widgets. Uh, but they need places for those folks to leave, their folks to live. Uh, and so housing is is the crux of all of that. Um, and you know the the reality that we face in Greater Minnesota is. The real need that we have for housing is not traditionally what is financed with with public housing programs and that what we need is market rate workforce housing uh, for folks that earn too much to qualify for income restricted affordable housing programs, but that don't have the resources to uh, 
to get into the housing market because frankly, our housing market is upside down right now. And I commend you guys again for the great work you've done over the years lifting up this issue. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to make up numbers here, but to give your listeners a sense as to what I'm talking about, uh, if it costs, you know, $300,000 to build a standard 1800 square foot, uh, three bedroom, one and a half bath house, you know, the bank is going to appraise that at 225 when it's done. So that new worker has to put down 20% to get the mortgage and then cover $75,000 just out of pocket. They're going to lose on day one to deal with that gap that we're facing. Uh, I was just talking with, with one of our communities and they built and opened up a year and a half ago, a new 37 unit apartment complex. It cost $6.5 million to build. And it appraised the day it opened when it was completely full. Every unit had people living in it. It appraised for $4 million. So that oh, community wow. had to cover a $2.5 million gap just to build that apartment complex. And, and they did it through things like tax increment financing, tax abatement, waiving of hookup fees and, and you know local industry contributions and whatnot. But that's the housing reality that we face in greater Minnesota. Um, you know, it, it's a challenge. We were fortunate to get about $39 million last session to support the construction of new workforce housing in our communities. But that's not anywhere near what's needed to support the full housing needs across uh, across our region. I was working with another community. Again, this is one where they're looking at building new workforce housing to support their industry growth. Um, the reality is in that community, they have zero need for any additional uh, affordable income restricted housing. And, and that's the area where the majority of public money goes into the housing. The housing world is, 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 is to support that side of the marketplace, which is great. It's a needed across the state uh, investment, but it doesn't really get at the real needs that we have in a lot of our uh, a lot of our greater Minnesota communities. So it's a challenge. Um, and, you know, my concern is that we're going to start seeing it, and we are seeing it, uh, especially in our manufacturing side, the relocation of, of businesses, uh, the expansion of businesses in other places, or the relocation of production to, to other communities. Uh, we had testimony this year uh, from a developer in greater Minnesota who highlighted a, a business that they work with closely that has moved a significant portion of their uh, newest product line to North Dakota because they didn't have housing in their community to support the workforce that they needed. And so in Fargo, there's a new you know 120,000 square foot production facility employing 120 people. Uh, that's now going to be doubled in size and add another 60 people uh, because we didn't have housing in, in the community that, that business is located in. Uh, and so, you know, my comment at the legislature is the lack of workforce housing in greater Minnesota is the number one economic, economic development tool for North Dakota. And it's true. You know, yeah. the, our surrounding states are contacting our industries in greater Minnesota saying, hey, we can get you housing in these communities if you move your production over there. And you know, if, if we keep not solving these problems from a public policy standpoint, at some point, those employers are going to say, we've got to do it. Uh, and 
when when that happens, Minnesota as a whole loses in that equation. Absolutely. And I, I think that goes hand in hand with we often talk about changing the narrative. You know, even you hear at all levels, whether it's county, state or federal, oh, we, we're bringing in these good jobs. We're bringing in more jobs. And it's like we don't we love good jobs, but we already have a problem filling the current jobs. And, so, you know, you talk about it used to be chasing smokestacks and now it's chasing people and, and trying to change that narrative to get people to understand that there are good paying jobs in greater Minnesota. We can't even fill those. And if you bring in a facility that's going to employ 50 people, well, that's going to displace 50 other employees. And so I don't know what how we help change that narrative to get people to understand that we have wonderful jobs here. We we need people. Yeah, you know, I think I think the narrative is starting to change in some places, uh, which is good. Uh, we had a very productive and constructive conversation in the housing committees at the legislature last session on these very issues, and then uh, this summer. Uh, under Senator Ford's leadership, uh, the chair of the Senate Housing Committee, the Senate Housing Committee has actually done a couple of tours through Greater Minnesota. Uh, they did one uh, during the summer. They kind of went from Duluth over to the River Falls, and one this fall that went from Rochester over to Worthington. And there was a lot of acknowledgement around the challenges that we that we face in Greater Minnesota. Uh, and a lot of acknowledgement around some state policies that really hinder our our ability to build new housing in our communities. And so I think we will see some changes happen at the legislature this session uh, that will help stimulate the construction of some more housing in the coming years. Uh, but that's the result of policymakers really digging in and looking at the issue and wanting to learn about what the challenges are uh, and listening two communities on what the solutions need to be. Uh, so I'm optimistic about that front. Um, I also know that our, our businesses are stepping up and taking a greater leadership role in talking about these issues and helping formulate the solutions. Uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic as to where we can go on this front, but it's gonna take, you know, a really a unified greater Minnesota uh, work in this issues, which, you know, I'm fortunate to serve in the role that I do because that's part of uh, the mission and purpose of the Greater Minnesota Partnership is to help be that voice, to be that catalyst for these conversations that happen in St. Paul so that our policymakers really understand what is needed in our communities and how their decisions can positively and in all reality negatively impact uh, our communities across Greater Minnesota. Yeah, absolutely. And we so appreciate the work of the Greater Minnesota Partnership and yourself, because that for our research, we know that directly feeds to all of you to helping with obviously with policy. That's what we do is research rural policy. And, you know, we're we just completed a strategic plan here this last year and we're rolling it out now. And it, it's it's fun to see how our audience has changed because originally we were created to provide information just to the legislature where now, yes, we provide it to them. And obviously they're the ones at the state level doing the policy, but our audience has changed so much in its counties and cities and local EDA members that are using 
our research. And so I, I don't know, I feel, I feel like people are coming together of like, okay, we have to work together to get, get ahead. You can't have a, be a lone wolf anymore trying to make your community survive. You know, Julie, that's a good point. And you know, the, the reality is more communities are stepping up and saying there's a role for the feds and there's a role for the state in solving these problems and addressing them. But there's becoming more and more role at the local level to be innovative and creative and figure things out. Uh, and I think that, you know, the bonding bill is a, is a prime example of this one. We've got about a billion dollars of potential resources coming with seven and a half billion dollars of, of needs out there. So for six and a half billion dollars of those of those needs, they're end of the day kind of have to kind of decide, you know, the, the state's bonding process isn't our solution. What is our solution going to be? And so there is a need for our local communities to uh to use your resources and use your information to help figure out what those new innovative ideas are. And, you know, you highlighted New Ulm on the childcare front earlier. And, you know, as I said, there are a number of others, communities that are in that same position trying to figure out where they go. You know, a lot of that came about after learning about the childcare shortage from your original research back in 2018 that really highlighted what was going on in greater Minnesota around the lack of of child care and really identifying on a geographic basis, community by community, where, where some of those challenges are. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of people think, you know, the Center for Rural Policy and Development is, you know, it's a research group and it does great work, but the impact that the ideas you all put out there uh, really are game changers in a lot of our communities and helping them figure out where do they go and, and what needs to be done. So thank you for the work that you and your team do. Absolutely. You know, it's fun. We're starting to see the fruits of our labor because in research, you you don't see it right away. But we're starting to see, especially in the child care space, people that are utilizing our research and our ideas and, and using it to make positive improvements. So that's really good to see. Um, I want to wrap up here and just talk about the elections coming up. Right now, we have a slew of people that are saying, I'm not running for re-election um, and then trying to find other people. How is that, you know, I just think of a few people now that have just in the last couple of days said, I'm not seeking reelection. How does that affect the legislative session with getting things done? You know, the, the legislative session this year, and I'll close my comments here by saying it's going to be interesting, uh, <laughs> because the only entity at the state level that's up for reelection this year will be the Minnesota House. And so I suspect that everything that's done at the Capitol this year, given the fact that we do have one party control of everything, will be done through the lens of trying to work towards securing a continued DFL majority in the House following the November election. And everything that the Republicans do will be focused on how do we highlight that the Democrats don't deserve to maintain control of the House and the Republicans should have control of it. And so, uh, you know, I think I think that's going to be a big filter for what's going on. Uh, we're obviously starting approaching the season where we're hearing retirements and there have been some pretty big announcements in recent days uh, mm -hmm. from some key legislators on both sides of 
of the party in, in the House. Uh, probably, I think the biggest shocker for most of us was the announcement of Representative Liz Olson from Duluth, who's currently mm-hmm. the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, the most powerful committee in, in the House of Representatives, has announced that she's not running again. Uh, and just yesterday, uh, from our standpoint, so you know, a couple weeks ago, by the time your listeners are, are listening to this, uh, uh, Representative Pacarofalo, who had yeah. been previously the chair of, of the Ways and Means Committee on the Republican side, uh, announced that he's not going to run again. So some pretty big shakeups in in what the legislature is going to look like uh, coming back in uh, in January of 2025. Yeah, it, it will we'll throw one more interesting in there. It will be an interesting year to follow. How about that? Absolutely. <laughs> and unique. Now, I, I ask I think I've asked you this every year. Are they going to get is the session? Are they going to get done in time? They'll absolutely get done in time uh, just because there's nothing this session they have to do. Um, the budget's yeah. been set. Uh, and so this session's really around bills of opportunity. So the big question will be, can they get a bonding bill done uh, that will get enough Republican votes to get it off of the off of the floor? Uh, and then are there policy things that they want to deal with? Uh, and then... You know, we've got this $2.4 billion projected surplus for the remainder of this biennium. Will they spend any of those dollars? Uh, now, the reality is we have a projected $2.32 billion uh, deficit in the next biennium. So they'll definitely be done uh, by their constitutional requirement date in May uh, to be out of here. Um, I think the big question will be, uh, do they actually get out early this year? Which everybody always talks about. We're going to get done early this year, and then it never really happens. But uh, I think a lot of us will be watching closely, kind of see if they do get out early, get on the campaign trail, and uh, start talking twenty twenty five. Sure. Oh gosh. Well, we'll we'll see what kind of a unique session we have. How about that? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for coming on our podcast today and kind of giving us an overview of what's happened in the last year and what we're looking forward to in this legislative session. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, Julie, and uh, always happy to come back anytime you want me. Oh, you know you'll be back. Don't worry. (laughs) Thank you, everyone. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in and listening to the Center of Everywhere podcast. We'll see you in a couple weeks. You've been listening to the Center of Everywhere podcast, where we explore stories of rural Minnesotans who are making a difference in their communities. Rural isn't in the middle of nowhere. It is in the center of everywhere. Everywhere.